Well, thank you, Rex, for leading us into worship and for your prayer. Um, thank you, guys, for um, the song that was presented this morning before the throne of God. I first heard that song last summer when Tim Coyle sang it to us at his home and um, heard it recently at the Shepherds Conference. And my wife knows how much I love that song because I'm singing it every opportunity I get at home. But I don't know the whole song, so I just sing the first stanza again and again. Uh, but it's just great to sing and worship together um, before the throne of God. And Ben, thank you for your testimony. Um, we thank God for you. Praise God for his work of salvation in your heart and your soul. And we look forward to with you, uh, serving God with you for many years as God wills. Look forward to that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer before our word. Father, we come before you. Um, as spiritual beggars with nothing to offer uh, for we have no righteousness, no goodness but you invite us to your throne to commune with you and to worship you all by the grace that is in Christ and we give you thanks Lord we just thank you God for your goodness and your faithfulness um, pray that as we come before your word this morning we would come with a heart that is shaking and, and, and full of reverence and fear of you for we know that uh, these are your very words and these are your truths uh, disclosed, unveiled, revealed to your people so that we might know your will for us now and in the future may we worship you by our love for your word I pray all this in your name Amen Well, a few weeks ago, I spoke on worship, if you remember, and I talked about a rise in current worship songs that promote a somewhat a cheesy kind of familiarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that? You know, I call such songs uh, God is my boyfriend songs. A true story, I read this, that a pastor wrote this, said that a couple came to his church requesting to be married, and they wanted a a certain praise song called Eternity as part of their wedding because they thought it was a love song between two lovers. I mean these songs if you just change the names you would think that they were regular love songs instead of worship songs to our God and King. Well I believe this is just a symptom of a much larger problem in the Christian church today. It's just a symptom of a deeper problem if you get right down to it, the reason we have this, these kinds of praise songs and this kind of worship is because of an incomplete view of Jesus Christ. Currently, there seems to be an overemphasis on the humanity of Christ and a de-emphasis, a lack of emphasis on his divine nature and his divine glory. You know, even looking at his death, I was listening to Christian radio this week, and a speaker was going on and on and on about the physical pain of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, yes, that is true. It was physically painful. They tortured him. They persecuted him. And he went through suffering on the cross. But that is not the emphasis of the Bible. What needs to be emphasized is the spiritual nature of our Lord's suffering on the cross. 
as we studied last week, the spiritual agony he endured, being separated from God the Father, that is what he agonized over and not the physical pain. Well, because of this incomplete portrayal of our Lord, the church is left with a woefully inadequate picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord is seen as this nice guy, you know, kind guy, friendly guy. You know, we see pictures of him always petting sheep, always smiling and hugging kids. And at the same time, the transcendent majesty of Christ, the, the thrice holy God of Christ is left out. Well, this resurrection morning, not Easter, but I crossed it out. This resurrection morning, um, for this reason, I want to highlight to you the side of Christ, side of our Lord that is so often left out, so often neglected by the church today. I want to highlight to you the unique glory and the majesty of our risen Lord. And to do this, we'll be studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is called by many students of the Bible as the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. But many students of the Bible call Revelation the fifth gospel. Whereas the four gospels focused on our Lord's life and ministry pre-resurrection, focusing on his first coming, the book of Revelation is a recording of the Lord's glory in his second coming. And it focuses on the life of Christ, just like the gospels, but post-resurrection. It depicts our Lord in all his glory and majesty. We see him depicted as the risen Lord. And we see all his glory. He is standing before the throne of God. He is receiving endless praise and worship from all creation. And it is my purpose that I, by, by our study this morning, Revelation 5, it all help us to have a complete picture of our Lord. Yes, he is meek as a lamb. He was he's fully human. But he is also completely God, full of glory, and majesty. Well, if you have your Bibles open, the, the book of Revelation, a brief background about this book. The author, you may as well know, is the Apostle John. Uh, the book was written around A.D. 95. And by the time he wrote this book, he's the last apostle standing. He's the last apostle alive. A great persecution has, had been unleashed against the Christian church. And the Lord's apostles, because they're on the front lines, they suffered greatly. In fact, by this time, all the apostles were martyred for their faith. They didn't die of natural causes. They died because of their faith in Christ. Peter, 33 years after the Lord's death, was crucified upside down. James, the son of Zebedee, is recorded in Acts 12. He was thrown down by Herod Agrippa, and he was killed with a sword. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword. Andrew was crucified at a city called Petraea in Achaia. Thaddeus was thrown down in Jerusalem from the temple courts by the scribes and Pharisees. He was then stoned and killed. Matthias, remember him, the one chosen to replace Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. John is the only one who was not martyred. He would die, actually, 
a natural death, but even him, he suffered greatly for Christ. When he's writing this book, he's on an island of Patmos. And it's an island for political exiles. It was a prison, if you will. A desolate island, and John is there because of his faith. Now, before he came to Patmos, he was an elder at the city of Ephesus. There was a growing and prosperous church there. He was shepherding the flock, teaching the word of God, praying for the saints. And around AD 90, uh, the Caesar Domitian constructed a temple in Ephesus. He reigned from 81 AD to 96. Now, Domitian was a cruel dictator cruel king. He was eager to promote himself as Lord and God, and he required everyone in Rome to worship him. Now, worship of Caesars was somewhat common, but it was limited to after the Caesar's death. So they would worship Caesars after they died, rarely while they were still living, but Domitian insisted that people worshiped him in the temple, in his temple, while he was alive. It was required of citizens of Ephesus to go to this temple, to offer a pinch of incense on the altar, and testify that Domitian was Lord and God. For most citizens, as we can all understand, this was not a problem. They were used to worshiping many gods. They had many rituals, worshiping many different gods. They would just add Domitian into their long line of deities in their ritual practices. But for the church, this caused a great controversy. Um, for the Christian, these titles that Domitian demanded were blasphemous. Goes against the clear command of God, you shall worship no other gods before God. These titles belong to God alone. And of course, John refused to worship Domitian. He continued to bear witness to Christ, and he was sent to the island of Patmos as a political exile. In verse 9 of chapter 1, John tells us, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The beloved disciple of Christ is utterly separated from the church he loves. Patmos is only 40 miles away, but it might as well have been a thousand miles because he was utterly isolated. He's suffering alone in this island. And it is here at this time that John sees visions of the Lord. And that's the book of Revelation. Now, this is often called visions of John. Well, actually, if you look at John, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you will note that these are not the revelations of John. It is not John disclosing the truths of God, truths of heaven in the future. These are the revelations of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse, the unveiling, the disclosure is initiated not by John, but by Christ himself. You know, and um, I said this several, maybe a year ago at Anaheim Flock. I was talking to a brother, he was considering dating, he just started dating or something, and he were talking about women. And I was saying, yeah, you know, women, it's tough. It's difficult dating women or marrying women because they're very difficult to understand, and they're like the book of Revelation. 
And I think that made the member says on our website. Now I still stand by that statement. <laughs> a year later, I think that's true. Women are difficult to understand, like the book of Revelation and Ezekiel. Well, the book of Revelation is very difficult. I mean, it's filled with, it's very complex. It's filled with incredible imagery symbolizing truths that are at times beyond human comprehension. If you've ever read the Revelation, you understand what I'm talking about. I mean, what, what's going on here? Try to make heads and tails out of all these symbols and images and visions. It's very hard to navigate. But one thing is crystal clear. One thing you want to chalk and read the book and understand, that the focus of the Revelation is God. The core theme of this book is the centrality of God in all creation. That God is the culmination, the focal point, and the goal and end of history. And Jesus highlights that centrality of God by focusing on one geographical location. This theme is repeated 11 times in the book of Revelation. This word is repeated 11 times. This geographical location is the throne of God. Again and again throughout this book, the throne of God, throne of God. Someone is sitting on the throne of God talking about God himself. And someone is standing at the right hand of the throne, this throne of God. That throne symbolizes God's sovereign rule and power. And by its repeated emphasis, it's a clear declaration that the center of the universe is not you and me. It's not on earth. The center of the universe, the focal point is the throne of God. And that's the central theme of John's vision. If you look at Revelation 4, verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. John sees the throne. He sees someone sitting on the throne, and that is God. And he sees the full glory and majesty of God in the subsequent verses. I mean, John sees the flashes of lightning emanating from the throne. He hears the thunders roar. He sees that the, the throne is surrounded by 24 elders, reflecting perhaps the church, representing the church of Christ, and four living creatures, and they're all worshiping God. Endless worship and praise to God. They're immersed in one thing and that is worship. Look at verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Covering their eyes, their wings, day and night. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him. Uh, who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our God. You are worthy, our Lord, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. If you know the Bible, you would say, hey, this sounds a lot like Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. When he entered the temple, remember, and he saw the angels. Two times, God has spoken as a thrice holy God, Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. And Isaiah and John see the same vision of the throne of God. 
God's majesty, God's glory, God's sovereign rule. I mean, we don't, we don't see for ourselves, but I mean, just by the description of it, isn't it breathtaking? Isn't it? Can't you just visualize that it's an awesome sight, an awe-inspiring sight? The beauty of Christ, the majesty of God is unmatched. The hymns that they're singing celebrate God as their creator. Celebrate God as redeemer. They're rejoicing that he's about to take back what is rightfully his. So they, they realize this is the climax of history. God is going to redeem people. God is going to vanquish sin. Declare victory once for all. It's going to happen right now. This is the moment that if you don't know as Christian, this is the moment we're waiting for. You guys, what are we waiting for? This is what we're waiting for. When Christ comes back and everything is submitted to his authority, this is it. And the entire creation, Romans 8, 19-22, all creation is longing for this time to be set free from the bondage of sin. Well, when Revelation 5.1, John notices something in the right hand of God. In the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, he notices that he is holding a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, AD 95 was before our modern day books called codexes. Writing was not done on paper. Paper was not invented yet. They would use dried animal skin, parchment, and they would get two rods and they would roll it on the ends. And they would use scrolls for books, for reading and writing. Well, this is what John saw. But this was no ordinary scroll. A key distinguishing feature was that there were seven seals on the scroll. It was a Roman custom that any important contract, document, or a will that was were to be certified needed to be validated by seven witnesses. And they would all put their own seal on this, on this scroll. And only the person that was qualified, only one person, could break these seals and look inside the scroll. Well, that is what is happening here with the seven seals. Now, what is this scroll? What is this scroll? Um, the scroll? This scroll is a contract. There are six proposed views, but I, I believe it's a contract. Dr. Robert Thomas says this, this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract will be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. On the outside would describe the contents, a brief uh, description of the contents of the scroll. He continues, all kinds of transactions were consummated this way, especially deeds to property. End quote. The scroll that John saw was a title deed to the earth. It's the ownership of all creation, ownership of earth. Now, unlike other deeds where deeds describe who is the owner of the property, this scroll is special in that it is also the means of the inheritance. It is an active deed. It's a contract that is active and alive. It is powerful. If you look at, if you read the rest, rest of Revelation, you'll note every time Christ breaks a seal, a judgment takes place. Right? The first seal, second seal, and the seventh seal. 
you know, it's almost, the best way I can put it is, God's moving in, right? He's coming home, right? It's a, it's a contract, a deep, that is active and powerful as a means of inheritance of earth by God. The breaking of the seals enacts the will of God, and it culminates, the final seal culminates in the final dominion of the world. Now the rest of the chapter can be divided into three sections, three easy sections. First of all, there is the search for the worthy one. Only one person who is qualified can open this scroll. There's a search for him. Secondly, there's a selection of the worthy one. And then finally, the song to the worthy one. Search, selection, and song. Oh, verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? The unnamed mighty angel of God spoke with a loud voice so that his proclamation would penetrate to every corner of the universe. The angel sought someone out who was both worthy, qualified, and was able, had the authority, had the power to open the scroll, to break the seals. He asked, who has this inherent virtuous character? And the divine right that would qualify him to break the seals. I mean, meaning, who has the power to defeat Satan? Who is able to vanquish sin? Wipe out sin and its effects and reverse the curse of all creation? He sought someone who would enact the will of God. Finally bring creation to God's reign. Right now, creation is under the God of this age, Satan. He was looking for someone that would transfer that ownership back to God. God's redemptive plan, the culmination of human history, is finally now about to take place. Everything is set. Everything is ready. All we need is that one who is worthy. But as the echoes of his cry recede, there is only silence. No one approaches the scroll to break the seals. The powerful archangels Michael and Gabriel do not answer. The uncounted thousands of angels, they remain silent. All the righteous dead of all the ages, Abraham's there, he's silent. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, even Moses, they're hanging their heads. David, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, and even the 12 disciples that have been martyred, and John sees them standing near the throne, they're silent because they're not worthy. Not just them, but no one is worthy. Look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. No one in heaven, on earth, under the earth. An exhaustive search produced nobody. There was no one worthy. No one was able. Able is in an imperfect tense, meaning a continual problem. No one. They kept on searching and there was no one. The Greek word able here is dunamai. No one had the ability, the power, or the authority. They looked at every conceivable place in the universe. No one was worthy. Well, the disappointment was beyond John's ability to bear. Look at John's response. 
I mean, John's in the island of Patmos. He's seen the church suffer. All his brethren are dead. All his guys that he grew up with, that he ministered with, they're all dead, and the church is struggling from false teaching inside, persecution without. He's longing for the return of Christ. He's thinking, this is it. This is the end. And no one is worthy. And John, out of utter exhaustion and disappointment, his response is uncontrolled tears. He cannot stop weeping. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look, look inside. It's indescribable sorrow. He is overwhelmed with grief and dismay at the turn of events. The Greek word is kali here. The same word that was used of Christ when he wept over Jerusalem. When Peter denied the Lord and he went outside and he wept bitterly. Same word. Only time where we see tears in heaven. Right here. Only time where we see tears in heaven. And these are John's tears. W.A. Criswell explains why John is crying. John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve when they were driven out of the Garden of Eden and they were burying their son Abel and saw the effects of their own sin and they wept. Same tears. Those are the tears of children of Israel in bondage as they cried out unto God when they were afflicted and in slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried out to heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on the silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable, end quote. John's tears represent the tears of God's people. John, John cries loud because there is no one worthy to redeem God's people. No one to end once for all the curse of sin and death. John's weeping stresses the effect on this on John. John's a godly man, hungering. He's thirsting for the righteousness of God to be revealed. He is longing. Maybe you experience this in a small way. You long to see the world rid of ungodliness rid of rebellion and depravity, and you long to see God vindicated before all creation. But we know that John's weeping, though it was sincere, it was premature. He need not have wept because God was about to act. Christ was about to act. The selection of the worthy one. Verse 5, one of the elders said to John, do not weep. Do not cry, John. Do not mourn. I love this. Look at verse 5. This is awesome. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able. He has a dunamai. He has the ecstasy of the authority. He has the power to open the scroll and its seven seals. This person, of course, is the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He is uniquely worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. The elder here gives two reasons why the Lord is worthy of opening the scroll. Two reasons why. His worthiness is based upon who he is and what he has done. Two reasons. First is who he is. Second reason, what he has done. First reason, who he is. The elder says, 
he is worthy because of who he is, and he gives two messianic titles to highlight this truth. He uses two titles, Lion from the tribe of Judah, Root of David. The elder says, our Lord is worthy because he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Lion is the king of beasts. Judah is the royal tribe among the 12 tribes of Israel. He is alluding back to Genesis 49, 9-10. In Genesis 49, it is predicted that the future ruler of Israel would come out of, the, out of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe. Secondly, he's a root of David. It's a reference to Isaiah 11.1. 1. It is prophesied there that the future ruler of the earth, the Messiah, would come from the line of David. That's why so many times in the Gospels, Jesus is called the son of David. Highlighting this, he's from the line of David. He has the authority to reign because of his lineage. Matthew 1, Luke 3 reveals that both his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, both go back to the line of David. Romans 1, 3, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. So the first reason why our Lord was worthy is because of who he is. The second reason is what he has done. Verse 5. See the lion, the root, has triumphed. If you have the NIV, it's triumphed. If you have ESV, it's conquered. If you have NASB, it says overcome. It means victorious. Conquer. The tense is aorist, meaning it's a past tense event, but it's a cumulative aorist, cumulative aorist, meaning it views a series of events culminating to an event that's happened in the past. It is used of verbs which signify effort or process, meaning our Lord was victorious. He triumphed, but that triumph was a culmination of his life, culmination of his efforts. And that is why he cried out in John 19.30, it is finished. His whole life was a war, was a battle, and he finished it on the cross. At the cross, he defeated sin, Romans 8.3. He, he, um, he, for what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, God destroyed the power of death through him. Colossians 2, 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. As he looked at this incredible scene, the glowing blazing reflection of God's glory emanating from the throne as he looked upon the Lamb of God, the, the, the root of David. John's sorrow was turned to joy. The Lion of God. He turned to see the Lord approach the throne. He was expecting this Lion from the tribe of Judah, the, this majestic kingly, uh, 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 king of the beasts, this majestic powerful ruler. But look at verse 6. Though he expected a lion, what did John see? John saw a lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The, the Greek word for lamb is arnos, right? The word here is a diminutive form, arnion, meaning a little lamb. 
a pet lamb. It, it came to be used as a term of endearment. The sacrificial lamb of Passover was not, not like we pick up from a Christmas tree. We go to a lot, I'll take that one. No. From the tenth day of the first month, you, you brought that lamb into your household for four days. It became for that four days a part of your family, a little lamb within your household. And after that four days, after you got used to that lamb, then you would slaughter it for the atonement of sin. This word expresses God's love for his son and the price that God paid to give him to us. Through the book of Revelation, Christ's lion-like majesty is only used once. But lamb occurs 28 times. The point is simply this. That his kingly crown, his rule, his power lies in his redemptive work on the cross. How was he victorious? He wasn't victorious through an army. It wasn't a physical battle. He didn't conquer them with might. How did he conquer sin and death? By becoming a lamb. Meek as a lamb. By being slaughtered by his sacrifice. By being sacrificed by his executioners. Our Lord destroyed the enemies of God. Conquered sin and death. Not as a lion, but as a lamb. Now several features indicate that this is no ordinary lamb. Look at verse 6. It looked as if he had been slain. The Greek word there is literally slaughtered. This verb was used specifically for victims of sacrifice. The animal, like it was slaughtered. It was, it was a victim of a horrific crime. It was killed. So we see the scars are still there. The marks on Jesus' body when he was glorified. He told Thomas, feel the hole in my side. The scars were still there. And even in his glorified body, the scars are still upon his body. The only man-made thing in heaven. The scars on our Lord's body. The deaf have a sign for Jesus. I think it's so appropriate. They do this, don't they? This is a sign for Jesus. A sign of his piercing on his hands. Was well, accurate. Because those piercings are still there, even to this day. But though he looked like he was slaughtered, look at verse 6, look again. He's standing. He is standing. The scars from the deadly wound this lamb received were clearly visible, yet he was alive. Standing here is in the perfect tense, meaning he had been slain, but now he is firmly standing. He is immovable. He is very much alive. The perfect tense here stresses the immovable strength of the lamb. Another feature is that it has seven horns. Seven is the number of perfection. And horns symbolize strength and power, meaning the absolute power of Christ. The lamb has seven eyes. Again, seven denoting perfection. Eyes meaning omniscience. That Christ sees everything. He knows everything. This lamb of God, verse 7, comes and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat at the throne he takes the, the scroll and God by giving him the scroll acknowledges the Lord's worthiness to break the seals and open the scroll verse 7 guys again if you don't know this is what we're waiting for 
This records the final monumental act in the heavenly scene. What a beautiful picture. This views the great and culminating act of history. This is a sign that the end is near. The ultimate goal of redemption is about to be seen. Paradise is regained. Eden will be restored. Before John's very eyes, the lamb came and took the scroll and out of the right hand of him who sat on the, th on the throne. History is now coming to a close and God's reign over the earth is about to begin. And in a spontaneous response, we see the song. We hear and read of the song to the worthy one. The final section, the song to the worthy one. The spontaneous response is that praise breaks out from everywhere in the universe. Realizing that the long-anticipated defeat of sin, death, and Satan is about to be accomplished, Realizing that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth in triumph and establish his glorious millennial kingdom. Realizing that the curse will be reversed. The believing remnant of Israel will be saved. The church will be exalted. Ruling with Christ. Verse 8, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. They began to worship Christ. In verse 9, and they sang a new song. They sang a new song throughout the scriptures. The new song is a song of redemption. New song is about a song of God's redeeming act. And they sing verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. Pointing to the cross. Why? Because with your blood you purchased men from God, for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. The, the act of redemption. He purchased people. He saved from every tribe. God paid the price. Verse 10, you made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth forever points to the present effect of the cross, the placement, the transference of people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the church, where we were not a nation, but now we're a nation. A royal priesthood serving our God. And then verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of the many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand and ten times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. To the voices of the four living creatures and the 24 elders are now added those of innumerable angels. Myriad, 10,000, that's the largest uh, number, highest number for which the Greeks had a word, 10,000. The phrase 10,000 times 10,000 describes an uncountable number of angels singing to worship the Lord and with one voice they declare that the Lamb is worthy. Lamb is worthy who was slain to receive this authority from God and open the scrolls. The last picture we see in Revelation 5 is one of the risen Lord in all His glory and majesty receiving unending praise. And this is the future. May this um, 
picture, be vivid in our hearts, that as we come before God to worship Him, we will remember, yes, He is our friend. Yes, He is fully man. Yes, He was hanging on a cross and He died. But we'll also remember that He is God. That He is a thrice holy God. That He is standing at the right hand of God in all His glory. That that is a Jesus we are worshiping today. Let's pray.